HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, all right, all right. It's What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. It's 12.07 on a Monday. We had a little technical difficulty, which had to do with me uh, being on a local rather than an express. So my apologies, uh, and especially to my guests. Um, But first, we're going to start with... Oh, did I say who my name was? My name is Katie Kiefer, and I am the host of What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm just a little bit famished here. I had like a kind of a rugged couple of days. Um, I have this uh, ancient uh, pile up in uh, New England. And when I arrived there this past week, I was confronted with a very bad smell. And anybody who has a house in the country knows that a bad smell is bad news. Um, So it took some doing, but um, I identified the source of at least one part of the bad smell. And that turned out to be a baby raccoon that had perished in my basement. Um, So I dispatched the baby raccoon and uh, came back. This is a sorrow, by the way. This is part of joys and sorrows, people. Just so you know, this was a sorrow. I had to like eliminate this baby raccoon out of my life. And then I went into the house and the smell didn't go away and it didn't go away. And then I also found that the mice had suddenly infiltrated and had a giant mouse party um, with a double bagged bird of bird food that they had ignored throughout the winter. Incredible. So um, anyway, it just went on and on. And then I found another dead baby raccoon and then yet more smell was emitted. And I finally identified the fact that it was beneath the floorboards in one of my bathrooms. So this is bad, bad, bad. And then you know what, folks? Here's a joy. I'm leaving for Europe on Thursday. <laughs> so <laughs> I pity anybody who goes into that house in the next four weeks. That's all I can say. So that was, that was, uh, there, so there's the sorrow and the joy of my life. Um, but then I have some other really cool things to say. Not as long as my usual list. Um, I was a bit pressed thanks to the angst and worry of uh, trying to, f- dispatch all these rodents before I left. And let me tell you, I caught five mice in four traps. Go figure. 
Anyway, so, um, but you all, those of you who listen regularly to the show and, um, and listen to the Joys and Sorrows segment will know that my favorite hobby horse, uh, lo these many weeks, has been the governor of Kansas, one Sam Brownback, a Republican. Now, Mr. Brownback, uh, you know, he adopted the uh, policies lock, stock, and barrel of, of Arthur Laffer, who designed what was called trickle-down economics and implemented by David Stockman during the Reagan administration. See, I'm old enough to remember that. As a matter of fact, my big sorrow right now is that I'm about to turn 60, but I think I've complained about that enough here. Um, anyway, so Mr. Brownback implemented these massive tax cuts, largely for the wealthy, um, and also for businesses to whom, as I mentioned last week, he had, for example, given away a giant tax break, uh, plus municipal bonds and other goodies to Cargill, uh, a company that makes conservatively probably half a billion in net profit a year. Um, he had given them all these goodies and freebies so that they would maintain their business in Missouri, uh, excuse me, in, in Kansas. And by contrast to that, here is a company, and I'm going to read quite a bit of this. Um, here is a company called Pathfinder Health Innovations. It's an insurance company, and this was penned by the CEO of that company. As of uh, July, he has decided to move his entire company out of Kansas and to Missouri. And so um, here are the reasons why. Uh, And I'm going to quote from his letter, which is really extraordinary. Um, In recent years, Kansas has become a battleground for conservative ideals. Traditionally, Kansas was a moderate state with the governorship switching every other election between Democratic and and Republican governors. But the election of hyper-conservative Sam Brownback as governor heralded a new age of far right-wing ideology. It wasn't just that Brownback was conservative. It was that he is seen as a tool of the Koch brothers and ALEC, a conservative think tank and lobbying organization. Brownback used his influence and funding to eliminate, quote, moderate Republicans from the Kansas legislature and to install his hand-picked conservative cronies. He couldn't do the same. This is a real eye roller, folks. Get ready. He couldn't do the same with the Kansas Supreme Court, which has ruled a number of the conservative legislature's laws as unconstitutional. So Brownback's administration decided to threaten to cut off funding to the court system and is actively pursuing legislation to impeach the Supreme Court. Kansas has become a test center of trickle-down economics espoused by economist Arthur Laffer during the Reagan administration. Nowhere has there been as thorough an implementation of Laffer's policy recommendations, and nowhere has there been as dramatic a failure of government. Under, I'm sorry this is long, but it's just so juicy. Under Brownback's direction, Kansas implemented an unprecedented tax cut in 2012, eliminating taxes for LLCs and professional firms, for full disclosure, PHI, his company is a C corporation, and making the largest cuts in the highest tax brackets. He shifted taxes to create a heavier burden on property and sales taxes, which typically represent a larger burden on lower income brackets. Brownback declared that this tax cut would be a, quote, shot of adrenaline for the Kansas economy, but the reality is that the tax cuts have had the opposite effect. Kansas lags neighboring states in job growth, and for 11 of the last 12 months, Kansas has dramatically missed revenue targets, falling deeper into debt and facing another round of degraded bond ratings. The worst part is that the burdens for the shortfalls rest on the shoulders of those who can least afford it, children and the developmentally disabled. One of Brownback's first actions was to close the Lawrence Office for Kansas Social and Rehabilitation Services. This 
agency provided services for low-income children and the developmentally disabled. And access to the Lawrence office was critical for people in that community to receive services. Their only option was to try to figure out how to get transportation to the Topeka office 30 miles away. Not an easy task. The closure of the Lawrence office was supposed to save the state $400,000 per year. At the same time, Brownback decided to pursue a personal vendetta against the Kansas Bioscience Authority, an organization created to spur the economic development of bioscience companies in Kansas. Brownback was convinced that funds were being misused, so he decided we needed to spend over $400,000, conveniently the same amount as would have kept the Lawrence office open for the developmentally disabled, on lawyers and auditors to pour over their books. In the end, they found a total of $5,000 in misused funds, which the former president President repaid with a personal check. I'm going to skip quickly to this. I mean, the guy has refused to uh, to ex- accept the Medicaid um, expansion that was offered by the federal government for Obamacare. Um, so uh, let's see. At the beginning of 2016, 17,000 Medicaid applications were waiting for approval, 8,000 of which were well beyond the federally mandated 45-day threshold for processing. Pregnant women who would have received for services by default under the previous Medicaid plan in Texas were now waiting four-plus months for services often exceeding the term of their pregnancy by the time services uh, were authorized. Of course, I've already discussed the fact that he's gutted the state uh, education system. Um, he wrecked this uh, mentally, uh, you know, a, a mental hospital or a facility, psychiatric facility. And then... To double down on his policies, Brownback is is ignoring the $250 million shortfall predicted for 2016, instead opting for headlines about closing Kansas to refugees and blaming the liberal media for the state's economic woes. And so now I'm going to just skip to the end here. In the end, I believe the goals of the Brownback administration are going exactly as planned. Starve the state of resources to the point where it just makes sense to turn over critical government functions to for-profit entities. Entities, um, And so this is the CEO of Pathfinder Health Innovations. I won't read the rest of it, um, but he does say uh, in closing, I believe it is the responsibility of business owners and people with some voice to speak up against these destructive policies. Um, and he, he thinks that Sam Brownback and his cronies should admit the damage they've caused to the people of Kansas and resign in the shame they deserve. I mean, when do you hear about an insurance company... <laughs> protesting to this degree. I mean, I just love it. I, you know, I'm going to keep on the Brownback thing, but um, this will be the last time you hear about him uh, in anytime soon. And then um, one more joy. And that is, this was a quick article in the, in the times, which I highly recommend. It was in the paper yesterday. Um, And that is that scientists are, this is our joy for today. Scientists are hoping to cultivate an immune system for crops and um, and they're going to do that by uh, increasing uh, the biome in soil structures. And that leads me to um, my guests today um, who've been very patient and waiting for this. They've been standing by for literally a quarter of an hour. Um, and I apologize to you for that. But um, we are going to be talking about a film made by Mac, Matt Wexler and uh, Annie Spiker. Um, and it is called Sustainability. So stay tuned. We'll be right back um, with Matt and Annie and we'll learn all about this wonderful film uh, that they created and uh, released and that we should all be looking for and watching. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Just um, we're going to do a quick sponsor drop here and then we'll we'll head to the guests. Thanks. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole, raw, certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guests today are Matt Wexler and Annie Spiker. Together they are Hourglass Films. And um, they produced a film called Sustainable um, that came out, I guess, about close to a year ago, you guys, right? Welcome to the show, by the way. And thank you for waiting. I'm so sorry I took so long. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, no problem. So you guys released this film uh, last fall, is that right? Or last winter? No, we just released it. Oh, uh, really? It just premiered publicly this May, May 22nd. Oh, for heaven's sake. Oh, my God. So I'm actually timely here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're really tired. I'm on the cutting edge, as always. Well, listen, I really love the film. Again, it's called Sustainable, and it takes, it's a, um, well, I should let you guys describe it. um, Why don't you tell us what Sustainable is and what inspired you to make the film? Ian, you want to take it? Uh, Sure. Don't be shy. (laughs) So we've seen a lot of food films um, that address the whole issue facing our country right now from a really more of a depressed perspective and we wanted to create a film that provided some hope for people that Mm -hmm. there are solutions out there to the problems we face and hopefully maybe inspire some uh, of the future farmers in our country. I thought it was, I mean, that was the thing that I liked the most about it. So I'm so glad that I picked up on the right thing. Um, I loved the fact that it was a very solutions-based film. Like you showed the problems, but then here's the solution. Um, so when you were making the um, film, you, you found a farmer named Marty Travis, and you sort of, you used seasons to kind of advance the story. Can you talk a little bit about how you found Marty and, and how sure. you sort of like made that happen? Is that you, is that you Matt, who's going to answer that? Uh, well, well Annie, it's my Annie found for, Marty, oh, and uh, for Marty. Thanks, for, thanks to her for doing that. Annie, why don't you just say a little bit of how you how you found him? Yeah, um, I actually get to work with the the great chef Rick Bayless, who's from Chicago, and he's done a lot right. about local food and farming um, in the Midwest. And we told him about this idea we had for a film, and he told us to go check out Spence Farm, and he said. Yeah, they're doing all the right things there. So we went down and we really found kind of a haven in the middle of industrial agriculture where he really is doing everything right. He's the hero of sustainable agriculture. 
so we decided to follow his his story and his family's story. Mm-hmm. And the reason we really wanted to follow the seasons specifically is because the idea of e- eating seasonally has has kind of been um, misplaced from the way <laughs> Americans eat um, today. And we wanted to kind of create this feel that food is really related to the seasons. You know, what's available in the spring is freshest at that period of time, and it's exciting for people to eat um, spring vegetables or, and summer fruits are, are amazing. And the fall is all about, you know, that Thanksgiving table and, and what comes to the meal at that point in time. So we really wanted to highlight the various seasons and create a narrative around that and uh, through Marty's character. Right. I, lo- I loved him, by the way. I mean, I thought he was just divine. Um, okay. So smart and so Thank articulate. You. Yeah, good choice. Um, He's even better in reality. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, I bet he is. No, he just was. He just exuded this really good vibe. I, I totally enjoyed him. So now when he, he went back to the farm as an adult, I mean, he his grandmother sold it, and then she bought the property back after it had been sort yeah. of abused by a corn farmer. So what he 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 went back in when it was kind of not in the greatest shape. Can you talk a little bit about how he decided to just like say I'm not doing the corn thing, I'm doing something else? Like what made that yeah. happen for him? Well, the um, really has the farm great... the farm is actually the oldest farm in Livingston County, uh dating back to 1830. Mm. And it basically just over the years went from being a very diverse farm to conforming to the ways of conventional agriculture, but never, never doing it at the quite the same level that a lot of the neighbors were doing it in the area. They, the farm went from being 160 acres to being a thousand acres to being back split up to about 160 acres. And when Marty's grandfather passed away in the 1970s, his grandmother was really left with the decision. You know, what do I do with this farmland? And and they decided to sell it to a conventional farm family, but put in the put in that contract that they have the first right to buy the farm back, which nice. was kind and of smart on their part. Not, not and this is story to the Travis family. It's important to note that um, this has happened to farmers all across our country. Thank you for making that point. That's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, with the loss of uh, farming families in this country is, is kind of breathtaking. And it's a yeah, very large... The, the crazy thing to also think about is that, you know, when they did pass it over to this conventional farm family who planted uh, GMO crops on the land mm-hmm. and converted it more to just your typical corn and soybean rotation, uh, it really devastated the soil. And mm-hmm. it devastated any any bit of soil diversity and, and microbial life that had been built up up to that point in time. So, and Annie, why don't you talk, tell them about, a little bit about Marty's past, what he was doing. Well, the thing that makes Marty unique, and fortunately his family was able to buy the farm back, but at that time he wasn't into farming at all. He was, like, I think he was in his 40s, early 40s. Yeah. And he was actually a great woodworker. He makes reproduction shaker furniture, and he's had his furniture bought by Oprah. He has some pieces in the White House. (laughs) So he wasn't into farming. He just wanted to recapture his heritage and his past in buying this farm back. Uh And I think to him, that's what it was about. It wasn't necessarily about feeding people. And then one day, his wife, Chris, who's also featured in the film, she asks him, what if your doctor told you that you couldn't be a woodworker anymore for health reasons. 
what would you do? And I think he realized that it's even more of a noble calling, you know, to Uh be feeding people instead of making furniture for wealthy individuals. He could be using his land to help uh, change our food system. Right. And he has a relatively small farm for uh, for the Midwest. I think, you, as you mentioned, it was like 160 acres. And one right. of the statistics that you mentioned in the film that just blew my mind is that on his 160 acres that he works with his wife and his son, he is making about $2,200 per acre, where right. the guys around him who are conventional farmers doing the corn soy rotation are lucky if they get 400 which, yeah, and not even yeah. all of his land is in production. Right. Because some of it is a, is a forest. Oh, so he has timber and, as and well. This other statistic, this other statistic will, will blow your mind. You know, those those conventional farmers are getting around $4 a bushel, and a bushel is 54 pounds. Mm-hmm. Marty, for his heritage corn that he's growing that goes to certain chefs in Chicago, mm-hmm. is getting $15, $15 a pound. Wow. Wow! So multiply that by fifty four. By fifty four, yeah. What he's getting, you know, it's what he's getting per bushel of of corn compared to what his neighbors are getting is completely out. You know, yeah, totally incredible. off the charts. You guys, I mean, but if 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 I mean, Marty was so smart in finding Rick Bayless and in recruiting his, you know. Compadres, you know, in the area who were also who were struggling and trying to figure out and getting them into this um, stewards of the land co-op and all of that stuff. But I mean, there is a limit to that chef market and and you're limited to being near an urban center. And so even though I, I absolutely loved what he was doing when it came to thinking about it in terms of scale and like, you know, could this work for farmers across the land? You know, I, I couldn't quite figure out whether that that equation would work or not, because I mean, Rick Bayless might be able to pay 15 bucks a pound for corn, um, but I certainly can't, and you can't probably either, unless you made a lot more money on this. Than I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, doing you know, doing specialty ingredients for mm. high end chefs is is one thing, mm. but there are various levels of it. Let's not just think right. about it as just you know this very top level of selling to these high end chefs and this very bottom level of just your your regular generic food. Right. There's, uh, actually, there's a great story right now. There is a uh, stone mill that's going in about two miles, uh, two hours south of the city of Chicago that is being done by a guy who was a conventional farmer. His name is Harold Wilkins. He was a conventional farmer for many years uh, doing just your corn and soybeans and just really got sick of it and wanted to do something to pass down to his family. Uh-huh. Saw that this uh, local grain market was coming up and decided to do a stone mill. He has 1,500 acres of, of uh, property, and he's convincing farmers in his neighborhood, like, hey, I can get you can grow this wheat and we can get it uh, milled here and we can send mm-hmm. it to um, local bakeries in Chicago. So they're starting to build a market for people who are more grain farmers to be able to convert, um, go through an organic conversion process and then sell into local markets in Chicago and right. in other cities around Chicago. Wow, that's awesome. You know, every landscape across our country is totally different. Some are more induced. Uh, sorry, more. Some are more um, conducive. Mm-hmm. Conducive. Thank you to <laughs> this kind of small farm vegetable growers. We've seen a lot in the North Carolina region where people are producing 
vegetables for schools and local communities on a mm-hmm. cheaper scale. It's different in the Illinois area. Every single state kind of has a different answer, and I think it, it is a good idea to start converting some of our corn and soy to that you know, small grain wheat production. Oh, I, I completely agree. Or, and many of the other grains. I mean, later on, in the, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the whole einkorn thing. And But before we get there, I wanted to just say one thing about Rick Bayless, who um, made a really interesting point in the beginning of the film um, about how people have lost their connection to the land and to the farmers growing their food. And I thought, yes, that's true. And then after I thought about that for a minute, because I know that's something that he says a lot, because um, I've been to many events where Rick Bayless is a speaker. I would also say that the loss of connection has to, and the reason we eat so much junk food and suffer from so many obesity-related diseases is, is because the convenience of processed and packaged foods cannot be denied, especially by a two-income household where there's nobody around to cook and people don't have the leisure and in many cases don't even have the know-how. So I'm like thinking, so how do we get people like Marty Travis or, you know, or Harold Wilkins or that kind of thing? How do we move their scale, their products into more of that packaging and processing? Because I think it's, it's kind of a fool's paradise to think that people are suddenly going to go back to the kitchen, start making bread from scratch. What do you think about that? How do you feel about that? I have I have a couple thoughts on that. First, um, I mean whether you whether you put wholesome ingredients into processed foods or whether you put junky right. ingredients into processed foods, I'm I'm still not convinced it it makes much of a difference when the food is processed and preserved in such a way that hmm. really all the nutrients are taken out of it. So, you know, Annie and I specifically we we don't eat a lot of processed foods for that reason. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, now there is now obviously there is a need for there to be a lot of processed foods uh, in our food system because it, it, we do need to maintain the convenience level at, you know, at some level. But um, we've completely lost a lot of those old traditional values of cooking that we used to have and the, the need to use wholesome ingredients and whole ingredients, uh, which doesn't need to be expensive, doesn't need to be time-consuming, can be really easy. Annie and I, we have two kids. You know, we we don't really have childcare aside from our parents who help us. We run our business. Uh, we do work for other clients as well. Mm-hmm. We do most of our cooking on the weekend. We don't really yeah. cook that much during the week, and we just cook enough food at that period of time on the weekends to to make sure that we can get through the week. And we supplement it a little bit with um, you know dump meals like stuff that we that we've pre prepared during the during the weekend and then we're cooking uh during the week. So I think if we keep going through this cycle of, you know, we need more processed ingredients in our in the middle aisles of our supermarket, I don't think we're going to really be getting away from the obesity problem. I, I think it has it more so needs to be about education. We need to get home economics back into the schools we need to get people <laughs> have you been cooking listening to my schools. program we need to get people gardening in the schools we need to get people down to farms to see what farming is like we need to promote more urban agriculture for people who insist on living in cities and i think if we continue to educate people in in some of these old school uh methods that were have been passed down from generations for thousands of years i think we'll we'll start to form a, a healthier society 
I, I think there's some truth in that. I, I mean, I, I, um, I, I personally never eat uh, processed food. I am a cook. I cooked professionally for many years. Um, so I, I totally take your point. And I grew up that way. I mean, my parents, my mom made three squares a day, man. I mean, for five people, like no well. questions <laughs> asked, you know. Um, so, and, and we composted and we gardened and we preserved and we canned and we made pasta and we made candles. I mean, you know, all of that stuff. You know, and she worked, but um, she was unusual in that way. And I, I, you know, it's it's hard to, it's it's going to be a heavy lift. I think I I agree with you that home ec should come back to the school system. I think that home ec and shop, you know, learning how to be self sufficient, how to you know right. rewire a lamp, how to cook an omelet or make a spaghetti sauce. I mean, I have a kid living in my house right now who doesn't read labels. She's a really smart girl. She goes to Vassar. Um, she buys spaghetti sauce. I said, Ann, what are you buying spaghetti sauce for? It takes, it costs a dollar ninety to buy a can of tomatoes. You get the same amount, and you look at the second ingredient in your tomato sauce. We looked at the label: tomatoes first, sugar Great. second. And she was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I'm surprised the sugar wasn't first. I know, right? I mean, anyway, (laughs) but we we digress a little bit. But it was really interesting. I mean, this is a girl who I consider very sophisticated. She's from Chicago. Uh, You know, she's smart as a whip. And she literally has no food education. It was like really an eye opener for me because, I mean, I've been schooling my own kid since the get go. Like we never had processed foods in the house. I just did not allow it. And we didn't have soda. And we, you know, it was like, and she's taken, she's taken the bait, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's really, I feel like it's just an endless cycle with the processed foods because, all right, in order to get the shelf life, in order for that food to be profitable for whoever is investing in it, then you have to put some sort of preservative in there or yeah. you have to find a way to get that shelf life ex- extended beyond what would actually seem reasonable for a fresh product. So you have to dumb down the nutrition nutritional value of that processed food in order to get it on the shelf. I guess so, but it, I don't think that necessarily means that we have to use, uh, for instance, the kind of wheat that we're using now, which, as your film pointed out, uh, we yeah. grow something. What was it? So the statistic was incredible. It was like 600 million acres or something like that, and, and it has basically no nutrition. I forget who said that. Was that John Ickerd? I wanted to talk about him. Uh. Dan Barber. Dan Barber. Oh, Dan Barber, Dan right. Barber. The, one of my favorite characters in the film, though, was this guy. Is it Eichard or Ickard? It's Eichard. Um, I came across his newsletter last summer when I was, or last fall when I was starting to do research on a book I just wrote about the meat industry. And can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about this guy? Because he is, he was just amazing. I mean, his newsletter is fantastic. I read a paper that he wrote about the meat industry. Um, but talk a little bit about John Eichard, because he's a fascinating character. He is yeah. fascinating. John is an economist. He was a, an agricultural economist mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s when there was a real push towards getting big, you know, making sure right. agriculture got big so we could feed the world. Right. And so he was a proponent of all of that until he started realizing that as these, um, as the agriculture moved in and farmers were having to leave their land and go to the city. It wasn't creating a better situation for them economically. It was actually kind of destroying the cultures in those communities. And then during the farm financial crisis in the 1980s, we saw a lot of farmers committing suicide. And I think that's really where it hit home for them, Mm. that this is is more than just a job for these people who um, are farmers. It's all about their connection with the land and the connection with their community. 
And I think that's when he really started to think we needed him to make a change. Mm-hmm. Well, well, he's and what makes him what makes him so interesting too is is that he did do that change. Like mm-hmm. uh, unlike a lot of people who speak about good food in America, he John made that change from actually promoting industrial agriculture to promoting sustainable agriculture. So he's seen both sides, so he has a really great perspective on it. Yes, I mean, and I I cannot recommend his newsletter enough. In fact, I'm going to spell his name I-K-E-R-D, John Eichard. Um, If you Google him, you can sign up for his free newsletter, and he's just a fascinating, uh, thoughtful, and very, very knowledgeable man. I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I'm dying to get him on the show. I'm going to put him on next. No, I'm really, I mean, I'm I'm going to, he's going to be one of my guests next yeah next fall so um let's talk a little bit about the solutions because we since we started late unfortunately we have a little bit less time but i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going until uh for another 12 or 14 minutes um let's talk about some of the solutions because most of them had to do with soil health and if you were listening to the joys and sorrows segment you saw that did you guys see that article about soil um microbiomes and and how they're starting to see that that on our facebook page oh cool yeah right i figured you would have (laughs) yeah Um, I'm actually reading a great book right now um, from David Montgomery, who's in our film. It's called The Hidden Half of Nature, and it talks about the microbiology in the soil and also how that relates to our own guts. Oh, fascinating. And preventing cancer. Oh, I think I... Wasn't he responsible for that art of the the exhibit or partly responsible for the exhibit at the Museum of Natural History this year in New York? There was a big ex- exhibition about the microbiome, and I think I heard him on National Public Radio. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. His book just came out this year, so right. I'm not sure if he's directly related to that. But Anyway, it was fascinating. So talk a little bit about some of the examples that you used in the film to show how increasing soil health um, actually increases you know, yield and um, nutrition and a host of other things. You talked to an orchardist who changed the the soil biome in his orchard, his cherry orchard. You had other examples. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, well, I think really the two most interesting examples that we cover in our film, the first one being this, what is going on about 15-year study from uh, Iowa State University where they take the uh, generic corn and soybean rotation and they add one crop to the rotation. And by adding one crop to the rotation, they decrease the amount of uh, chemicals they need to use by about 90%, mm. and they increase the soil microbiology so that the the soil will um, absorb more water per hour. Right. So when there's like heavy rainfall, they don't have the runoff that they typically have. Right. They're not having as much soil erosion, um, and the yields are equally as high, but the profits are even higher because they're not adding all these inputs in. And then when you go to a four crop rotation you have even even better soil to add uh-huh. and the other right. and so that one is a, a really easy one for farmers in the midwest to um you know to take on because it doesn't really change much about what they're doing they just have to add another crop to the rotation and then they have to find an elevator to take that crop to right but the other one is this company that's in middlefield ohio called aea which was started by Ad, this uh, advancing eco-agriculture. If you want to look it up, cool. Thank you. Yeah, and he and they basically reinvented the whole input system for farms. I mean, you have to look at our farmland and say, um, you know, we we can't just leave it be and put nothing on our farm land in order to grow the crops we need to grow for our increasing um, population size. 
So in order to convert this farmland back to being regenerative in some um, form, we need to add the micronutrients back to the mm-hmm. soil that have been taken away, that we've pulled out. Yeah, it's been depleted and, for decades at this point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the so topsoil is very what thin. What created is this, um, this ability to add uh, micronutrients to the soil that actually, over the years, improve the soil. So instead of actually putting more and more inputs onto the soil, you're actually putting less and less and less on until that soil is regenerative and kind of... Sustainable. You have to regenerate the soil to make it sustainable at this point Mm -hmm. in time. It's so degraded. Right. And it's really, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of acres that have basically been turned into, if not the dust bowl, something very close to it. And that and that's a real danger, I think, in the Midwest, is that we could have another, if drought becomes even more of a problem, which sure. undoubtedly will, um, you know, that will become even uh, even more of a danger towards, uh, for that population and for that, that land. Um, I wanted to ask you about, oh, I wanted to talk for a second about the einkorn section of the film. Right. Because um, I thought that was really interesting, the land race grains that that woman was talking about and the farmer who's growing some of those can you describe what that all is about the concept of a land race uh actually it doesn't have to be grains it can be any variety of species i think is the most exciting thing i learned from this film Mm -hmm. Um, and it's actually a very simple concept Um, if you stand in a conventional field you'll see every single piece every corn plant looks exactly the same or every soy plant looks exactly the same a land race is simply just a diversity of population. So human beings are actually a land race. You know, it's not a different species. So if you're in an einkorn field of wheat, it's not a different species. They're all einkorn, but they all look different. They all, uh, they're different colors, they're different heights, and they all have different adaptability to different climates. Uh-huh. So that if some are functioning better in drought, some function better in flooding, some are better on a hilly side, some are better and flat and the beauty of that is even though you might not necessarily get as much of a yield on your best year on any other year where you have any of these issues arise you'll still get a, a large percentage 85 90% of your production because you have this versatility in your crop right that's crucial that is just so. And what, you so know, what cool. the land race does is it really protects against drought. It protects mm-hmm. against uh, any sort of climate change condition because because it's a diverse population. Um, they're not susceptible to things like the southern corn leaf blight that happened in the uh, seven, early 70s and also kind of happened again in uh, 2012 and the oh. potato famine. And there, there's been lots right. of examples in the past of. Uh, times when we didn't grow a large enough variety of food in a certain area and and it left us nearly starving. Well, I I mean, we're facing, and the meat industry, I just wrote this book about the meat industry, and it's the same thing. They're using, like, way too few genetic strains, and that's why, for Mm -hmm. example, bird flu, the avian flu, um, you know, the domestic uh, production flocks are so susceptible to that, where backyard flocks of different species, of different, uh, you know, strains do not seem to succumb as easily, and it's exactly the same problem um but they they, i have to say the meat industry does not want to acknowledge that they they just rely on they rely on biosecurity that's that's like one guy told me one guy said to me half of our job is maintaining biosecurity (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, oh, that's great, buddy. <laughs> that's great for the hatcheries. <laughs> it sucks for the rest of us. <laughs> um, we're going to, we have only about five or six minutes left, which is actually quite a long time in radio. But, um, but this mm-hmm. was, I really, I loved this film. I really did. I thought it was just great. Um, and Thank like you. I said, I really loved the solution space to it. And the fact that you guys were showing off that there's a, the holistic approach to agroecology versus what we've been practicing, which many people call agrochemistry, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is, is just, it's such a mindset difference from what we've been doing. And, and that leads me to something that wasn't addressed in the film and that I kind of wished you had, um, had gone towards, which was, you know, the big agricultural companies uh, fund most of the ag extension schools uh, right. and the land-grant universities. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved it if you had, um, you know, or maybe you want to do this in your next movie, um, <laughs> if you ever do another one on sustainability. Um, but I, I would love it if you would 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 have investigated the role of, of big ag in sort of pushing uh, young farmers or people studying agriculture in the direction of the status quo versus in the direction of, of an agroecological approach, which I don't think is getting, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't get the sense uh, when I talk to sort of your average farmer that they're they're really getting that information in any great um, detail, mm-hmm. as it were. And it's mostly from guys like Marty Travis, you know, like word of mouth, but they're not being trained, you know, when they come out mm-hmm. of, of, you know, Kansas State with a whole concept of, of agroecology versus agrochemistry. And I, I think that's very unfortunate. So what do you right. think? How do you think is, well, what's we, the best way to get rid um, of that problem? The first it's thing is, is that we, it, it is definitely a problem. I mean, the ag schools are all uh, pretty much funded by the large ag companies. Yeah. Um, but th- that is beginning to change. I mean, the Illinois Extension at the University of Illinois is run um, by this great guy named Bill Davison, who is actually working with Spence Farm to grow uh, new heritage varieties of wheat to acclimate them to the Midwest, and uh-huh. then they're planning to spread them out to uh, various farmers in the Midwest. Cool. So the, the times are changing a little bit, and we didn't want to demonize you know, the schools and and create right. this divide between what we consider to be sustainable agriculture and what they're preaching. Uh, I think we have to try to find a middle ground to meet them, to, to bring them in to our side. Uh, I think there's been too much divisiveness in in, in creating sides of this battle, and everyone I totally is trying agree. to win their side. Yeah. And if, we just need to kind of all come to the meeting table together. Yeah. Um, and guys like Bill Davison, who's working at the Illinois Extension, um, is guys like him are, are really working hard to create new programs at these ag schools in order to get uh, different a different kind of ag information into um, into that uh, ag school. Right, so, right. And 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 they're working with us to uh, get screenings in all the small towns across Illinois. Oh, fabulous! So, I mean, they're going to be sponsoring various screenings for us. Right. So, at some level, we have to, you know, thank them for for being a part of it. We're trying to get our film into all these ex schools and right. trying to get them to really reconsider how they're teaching. I think it'll all catch up eventually, but right now it is still kind of a problem. It's. I have been talking for, I mean, I've been doing this show for seven years, and for seven years I've been talking about the polarization between sides and how bad that is for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's so refreshing to hear young people like you, instead of demonizing the farmers and demonizing the companies, and, you know, these people are all bad, bad, bad. They're not exactly. all bad. This is what their training is. 
and they need yeah. help just like everybody else in making, you know, moving to another thing. And, you know, when you're talking about moving, you know, whether it's changing your crop rotation uh, from corn soy to corn soy alfalfa or corn soy oats or whatever, that's a big deal for a guy who's like operating on a super thin margin to start with, you yeah. know, like it's a real mm-hmm. gamble. And moreover, that's the equipment he owns. And it's probably still yeah. paying off, you know, so, and it's the same thing in animal agriculture. It's like, this is the equipment they own. This is what they were told is the right way to do it. And now everybody's pissed off and they're supposed to mm-hmm. suddenly turn on a dime. <laughs> it's why, it's why, um, Paul Willis from, you know, Nyman Ranch Pork, it's like, he's very protective of farmers, like whether they're doing it his way or the, whether they're doing it, you know, industrially or conventionally, because, they're kind of over a barrel at that point. You know, it's really hard to make the switch. And I, I love hearing the idea of like, let's everybody sit down at the table and figure this out. So, you know, that's why I was saying in the beginning of the show, like if we produced better quality grains with more nutrition, but we still yeah. had to put them into processed foods, wouldn't that make a better product for people who simply yeah. don't have the time, the luxury, the convenience, whatever of cooking. So, um, oh dear, we've arrived at 1250. Um, tell, what was the biggest challenge in making the film? Funding, the, the funding, really, yeah, of funding, right? Uh, you know, we're pretty much self-funded film. We wow. got um, a loan from some people who are very passionate about the food system, and we're very grateful that they kind of jumped on board. Mm-hmm. Um, just working off the last comment that you just made, I, I love this word that uh, David Montgomery always uses the word organic-ish. Yeah, which I, I, <laughs> is a great word, and I, and I think that's what we're, we're, where we need to start thinking about going. When we start about yes. think about converting farms, that let's work towards organic-ish practices. Well, what I noticed your work you're doing as best as you can to be organic, but you right. you know it, maybe you're using five uh, percent of the chemicals that you were you were using. That's a huge improvement from where we where we're at right now. Absolutely. We I, in fact, I noticed very much so that, um, that that none of the farmers in your film talked about organic, or one guy, the grain mm-hmm. farmer, no, they talked about no inputs. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. So it's yeah. like, it's now it's not about organic, it's about no inputs. And to me, that is so much more practical. It just makes right. so much more sense. Instead of having to like modify your soil and go through this extensive process of changing up your soil and, you know, doing all the stuff that requires that, you know, it's just, it's not feasible on the grand scale unless there's a huge government, uh, you know, push to make it happen. Um, I want you guys to promote your, uh, your screenings, uh, find out where people, you know, people find out where you can see the film, uh, go to the website. What's the website? Blah, blah, blah. You know what to do. Sure. Sure. Um, so we're still looking for buyers. If there are any buyers out there, uh, we'd love you to pick up our film, but if you're not a buyer, um, our website is sustainablefoodfilm.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there, and you can get any information about when the film's coming out. There's a place um, on the website where you can host a screening in your area, and that's available now. So if you want to bring the film to your community, you can sign up to host host your own screening. Cool. And then also our Facebook page, if you go ahead and like our Facebook page, I think that's a good way to keep in touch. It's uh, Sustainable Food Films. 
on uh-huh. Facebook as well. Okay, very good. Well, Matt and Annie, thank you so, so much for, um, first, for making the film, and secondly, for joining me today. And um, you can be sure that I'll be Twittering about you. <laughs> Um, you. On, my, on, my, on my feeble to feed. I'm not very good at that stuff because, you know, I'm, I am 60 or almost. I'm, I'm um, terrible at it myself, yeah. I, 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 I don't Twitter, really understand how Twitter means to oh my God, it's, in our business. Somebody just, a young person just told me that, that they don't even do Twitter. They don't even bother. That's an old person's thing. He literally said that. Oh, really? <laughs> Cracked me up. Um, but yeah. thank you so much for joining me. And uh, where do you live? Are you in New York? Are you Chicago or New York? We're, we're in Chicago-based. Chicago uh, well, yeah. We're you, Midwesterners. That's why we wanted to make you a, film the film. a lot about the Midwest. Right. Well, yeah. it's a great it's a job. world out there. Again, it's called Sustainable is the name of the film. And go to the website, uh, check it out, watch the trailer, and uh, host a screening, folks. It's a wonderful film full of great information and full of great solutions that you know more people should be paying attention to. Thanks again to my wonderful sponsor. Um, of course, I've forgotten who it was now. And thank you to my, my <laughs> new engineer, Pierre Bien-Aimé. Um, he probably will take a while for him to become as Bien-Aimé as our dear departed Jack Inslee. Um, but I'm sure it's going to happen soon anyway thanks you guys and uh we'll see you oh uh listeners um well do i need to tell you this i'm going to be away for a few weeks uh but we'll be back in the fall with a brand new season um and it's going to be a rock star of a season so um until then adios thanks for listening